What's up, my miners of intelligence and consciousness? I'm Rick Brooks, and this is Rick's Mind. Today with me, I have Kamen Mohammadi, who is an award-winning journalist, broadcaster, teacher, and public speaker. What's going on, Carmen? Welcome to the show. Hey, Rick. Thanks for having me. Anytime. So there's a lot going on in the world. And one thing that, you know, this podcast hasn't really covered or talked about is what's going on in Iran. So I wanted to bring you on. And I think a really good place to start, right, is kind of the beginning. And, and if you could just explain to the listeners, I'm, I'm sure that most people know what's going on, but it's it's really good to have it from um, someone that is very close to this. So if you kind of just give us a quick recap of what is going on over there and why this started. Absolutely, Rick. Yes, thank you. So we're now in the fifth week of protests, um, really uh, unimaginable, really, protests in Iran. Uh, this started uh, around the death of a young woman who, on the 13th of September, she was arrested by Iran's morality police, which is a division of the police which is concerned with making sure that women specifically are uh, correctly turned out. That's because Iran has Sharia law, this Islamic law that it's had since 79. And um, one of the things that women cannot do, as well as sing in public or dance in public, is sh wear tight-fitting clothes that show the contours of their body or show their hair. So most women in Iran will go around with a loosely tied headscarf and a kind of um, sort of long coat or something. Um, now, this, um, this morality police, they're always on the streets. They have existed for the past 43 years, and they make sure that women are correctly turned out. Now, whether, you know, women can have a good hijab or bad hijab depends a little bit on how the wind is blowing at the time. Now, women in Iran have interpreted this in very um, loose ways, let's say, particularly in the past few years. But we have a hardline president now. And so there was a crackdown by the morality police from the beginning of this summer on how women were looking, how, you know, bad hijab, as they call it. Now, this woman, she was from Iranian Kurdistan, a province in the far west of Iran, and she's called Mahsa Jina Amini. Jina was actually her Kurdish name. So Mahsa Amini is her Persian name, which is what she's been become known by. She was visiting Tehran with her brother, and she was stopped by the morality police on the street 13th September for bad hijab. They took her into custody, which they often do for re-education, they call it. In the two hours that she was in their custody, this is according to her brother, who was there the whole time, um, she fell into a coma, and she was taken to hospital, where... She never came around, and on the 16th of September, she died from her injuries. The regime have said that she had a pre-existing condition and that she had a heart attack. Her family say this isn't true. She was 22. She was in good health. And that, in fact, there was a lot of evidence of her having been really severely beaten around the body and the head particularly. So there is this conflicting narrative. Uh, protests burst out immediately, particularly they started in the Iranian Kurdistan region, where she was from, uh, protesting her death. Uh, women started to actually, in solidarity and out of grief and anger, started tearing off their headscarves and cutting their hair as a sign of 
Well, grief, but also rebellion, you know, the sense of if my hair is a problem, I'll get rid of it, you know. Um, and these protests broke out around her funeral, around her grave, and they spread throughout the districts, the, the province of, of Kurdistan, even though for two days there was amazingly um, heavy kind of response from the authorities. So reportedly five people killed in that time and, and 250 people people arrested. However, these protests spread throughout Iran. They didn't die down. And that's really the story that we've been seeing ever since. You know, um, every single day since then, the, the protests continue. We are now over a month since this happened. Um, there's no sign of these protests dying down. They started off with women really, and it's really very much women, women, young women and girls at the forefront of this really extraordinary movement that we're seeing. This, these strong images of women tearing off their headscarves, you know, waving them in the air, dancing around fires. I mean, the fact that they're dancing is already, you know, tells you something. That's also forbidden dancing around fires, casting them in the fire. So it started off with women protesting the death of Mahsa Jina Amini because really they were saying, look, she, she wasn't even really improperly dressed. Like Mahsa could have been me. It could have been any of us. She wasn't really doing anything wrong. Um, and they've gone from that, that, that protest against the mandatory hijab to very soon becoming actually uh, a, a massive cry of fury um, from the people saying, we, we don't want the Islamic Republic. You know, we want our rights. We want simple freedoms. And this chant, which has been at the center of these protests, women, um, life, freedom. It's actually an old Kurdish rallying cry coming out of protests that, you know, ethnic Kurds have done for their own equality um, throughout not just Iran, but also in Syria. Um and the fact that, you know, there is this Kurdish chant that has become the center of the protests also gives you an idea of how inclusive this movement is. Yep. And that's something that I kind of want to get into because I don't know if people quite gasp, grasp that Iran is composed of a ton of different types of people. And I also want to kind of put some context into just just for just for the conversation's sake, like this is one of the oldest civilizations on the planet. All right. I think they're about 3000 years old. They are one of the very few countries that has never been uh, a, a puppet state slash um, what's the word colonized by the West. They've always kind of remained out on their own Island. I believe China, Ethiopia is definitely one. So this is a very proud um, of nation of people like this was, you know, the Persian empire, right? This is Cyrus, the great Darius, like these, I, I love the history, right? Um, you know, when we think of 300, the movie or, you know, the battle of Thermopylae, that was basically a backwater tribe to these people that, that it wasn't really that big of a loss. So this, I want to just kind of put some, I'm, I'm a big history nerd, right? So I want to put some context into what's going on. And, and not only that, the fact that the, this country and America, right? Um, primarily American audience here. So I'll, I'll shade it with this, that context as well. We've been friends for most of our, since before we were even a country in the 1700s, we had newspapers in Massachusetts reporting on what the happenings of what was going on with the Shah. And 
Since the Islamic Republic of Iran came to power, what, 43, 44 years ago? That's when our relations kind of stopped. And that was something that we kind of created. But prior to that, women, this was the most liberal and forward-thinking region in a very troubled part of the world. And they were one of our strongest allies. We used to sell them $10 billion worth of military equipment that the Shah would purchase each year. Like that is how we had presidents, foreign dignitaries in this country. And so the people that are now living there used to be, there used to be discos in Iran. There used to be women that would wear whatever they wanted. It was a very, it was its own culture, but it was a very, you know, a pretty, pretty inclusive place until the overthrow of the Shah. So from, you know, my life, I haven't been alive that long, but like in my life, I was shocked when I first found out how close our countries used to be. And so what's going on there is I think that there is a, another fact, excuse me, is that this is another reason it's very important to really follow, follow what's going on is this is a Shia dominated country. And the fact that the, the only other neighbors that, you know, when we were in Iraq, this country could have helped stabilize that. But because we're not friends, like, they're not going to work together. There's a lot of problems that could be solved in the world if we talked to each other. And it's a huge miss that we're not talking. And it's also devastating that these things are allowed to occur or, or are occurring now. People want to be free, and that's why this is very, very important. Because I think that there's an opportunity now to really start a dialogue. And if you can't see the value in us getting along with this country, and you're, you're crazy. But I do, that's kind of, I'm just, I'm spitballing and doing a brain dump of everything that I know of the situation. But what I don't know is kind of like the the Kurdish people and kind of how, what's going on there. Because I know that there's probably been quite a few atrocities committed. Like, I don't know why everyone seems to hate the Kurds. Like, could you kind of explain what's going on in that regard? <laughs> there is a Kurdish saying, the Kurds have no friends at the mountains. I think I even have a book up here that's called that. Um, <laughs> you know, th Rick, thank you. God, it's so wonderful. You know so much. It's so great to talk to someone who knows also about, you know, Iran, that's been part of my work for the past, you know, 20 something years has really been trying to kind of put Iran back in its place, as it were, within the history of the world. You know, um, Iran, you're absolutely right. It is one of the oldest civilizations. It is, it, Iran is the oldest piece of land occupied by the same race continuously. Um, so the, 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 the Iranian people have been on the Iranian plateau for, you know, they discovered, I think, some remains of up in the north of Iran some years ago, some remains of a jug with like some kind of wine in it, which meant that they had to predate when they thought wine making had started, you know, from about four or 5,000 years ago, you know. So, yeah, this is a really old, um, this is a really old, country it's a really old culture and what you talked about there is absolutely spot on as well the the different ethnicities within iran 
So, you know, in Iran, when you meet people, you'll say, where are you from? Um, even though we're all Iranian. So there are all of these different um, lands, provinces, and the minorities, many minorities within them, who have anyway historically always been Iranian. So it's an interesting thing. You know, that pan-Iranian identity is very, very strong. You know, Iran wasn't a country that was composed after the Second World War. So our, you know, our and our borders, present borders, have remained the same, I think, more or less since the 17th century. So it has a very strong national overarching identity. But within Iran, which is a huge country, it's three times the size of France, let's say, um, there are many different ethnicities who anyway are all identified as Iranian, but they have their own ethnicity on top, which is you have the Kurdish people that you mentioned. I'm half Kurdish. Um, my father, my, my father's people are from Kurdistan, Iranian Kurdistan, um, own cuisine, own language, own culture, own dances, own own outfits, you know, that very strong cultural identity. We have the Baluchi people, the Baluch down in the northeast around the border with Pakistan, and they are more Indian, Pakistani type tribes. They're the Sistan and Baluchistan. We have um, Khorasan, which is the one that is on the border with Afghanistan. And again, we have people, you know, we have an Iranian Azerbaijan that is on the north that borders, you know, independent Azerbaijan. We have Iranian Turkmenistan. So we have Iranian Turkmen. We have Iranian Azeri, who are Turkish-speaking people. Um, Persia uh, and the, the, the whole Persian thing comes out of one of the provinces of Iran, which is the province of Fars, which is the one in the middle, where the majority of Iranians are ethnically Persian. Okay. Um, and then I think the next biggest ethnicity are the Azeris, the Turkish speaking people. And then I think you start to get the Kurds, the ethnic Arabs, you know, all of these different things. Uh, the reason Darish the Great came out of the Fars province, that that's why when he conquered sort of pretty much the known world, that was the Persian Empire because he was Persian, he was Farsi. The Greeks didn't have the F, so they called us Per, so we became Persians, you know. Um, and so when people say to me, as they so often do in the UK particularly, oh, but, you know, Iran used to be called Persia. They, they, people, English people love saying that to me as if, you know, they're telling me something. It's um, always called it Iran. Used to be, <laughs> thank you by, by its people it's, it's like, always been to be been referred to as iran it's for sure always been iran it's only ever been called persia by the west yep. and in fact in the 1930s the the then shah which is the last shah's father reza shah he officially changed the name for foreign maps from Persia to Iran but actually inside Iran Persia doesn't exist right no. we have just Iran you know you have pass which and fast, that's that region. So that's that one. Um, the Kurdish people. <laughs> so the Kurdish people, there's quite a lot of Kurdish people. I think I read the population of something like 40 million in the whole world. Um, Kurdistan uh, doesn't exist as such as a country, but there is this ethnic people. There are a lot, there's a lot of them and their lands where they should have been historically basically are divided between Iran, Syria, Iraq, and Turkey. And all of those countries have big 
Kurdish populations um, and Kurdish regions. Now, the Kurdish people aren't particularly popular in a way with the kind of host countries because they're seen as a very fierce, very independent people. They're very, very strong ethnically in terms of their identity. Um, so over the years, so in Turkey, for example, the Kurdish people have been massively persecuted for many years. They're not allowed to even be called Kurdish, let alone speak their language, teach their language in schools, wear their clothes, all of that. So their identity, the, the Turks have really sought to erase the Kurdish identity. They call them mountain Turks, um, which for the Kurds is an absolute affront, you know, to their identity. So, of course, in Turkey, there's a lot of problems with the Kurds as they're known as terrorists. There are various separatist groups, you know, and there's all of that. Um, there is... There are the Kurds in Iraq who probably have the best kind of deal right now because they, since the um, Allied invasion, let's call it, we have they've had their own semi-autonomous region yeah. in the north of Iraq, um, and that, amongst my Kurdish family, the people that I know in, in Iranian Kurdistan, has become a bit of a dream for them. You know, this this part of the world where there is some kind of independent. Kurdish nation and identity. So the Kurds, let me talk about them in Iran, they have historically, so they've always had that part of Iran, very strong identity they have. Um, and they've always been, you know, this is a far western province. It borders, it, it well, it borders Iraq, Turkey, you know, um, large area of land, mountains, so remote as well. You know, if you even now, if you go overland from um, Kurdistan to Tehran, it's going to be like an overnight journey. So it's far away. It's a remote land. It's far away from, you know, the centers of power in, in Tehran, for example. And so the Kurdish people have always been seen as a bit of a threat to whoever was ruling, you know, central central ruler of Iran. Um, and they've always been really key in where the power kind of lies. In fact, the Kurds, that's why they always say that the Kurds have no friends but the mountains, because they're quite often in regional conflicts. They're quite often taken um, by a side by being promised, you know, if you fight for us, we will give you your land. And they've been betrayed time after time after time after time. Um, and even with the revolution of 1979, the Kurds were very active in that. And they were promised again their independence and their own land. And one of the first things that Khomeini and his government did, um, which is horribly right now, what's happening in Kurdistan is horribly reminiscent of that time, I believe, is they actually got fighter planes out and they bombed. Like they, once Khomeini took power, one of the first things he did was to absolutely subjugate uh, Kurdistan uh, because he didn't want them to be a threat to him, to his theocracy. So what I've been also seeing over the last few days, particularly Kurdistan has been really heavily under attack from regime forces. This is what's going on right now in Kurdistan as well is, um, you know, it, it's a horrific scene right now because I've seen scenes from Sagres, from Sanandaj is the capital of, of Iranian Kurdistan, where this isn't just people, you know, the regime troops responding to pr protesters, they're actually shooting inside people's homes and inside cars. So people who are just driving past protests, 
hosts, you know. Whoa. Um, it's, yeah, it's a really, it, it's hard to get news out of there. So that's not being covered so much in international news right now. But the scene right now in Kurdistan is really, really difficult. And it is, unfortunately, a replaying of something that that region has seen over time, you know, various different factions take power. They tend to promise the Kurds, you know, because they're very brave, they're good fighters, they're quite famous for all of that. They know the mountains very yes. well. Um, and then they betray them, you know. Yeah. So that's kind of what's going on. Um, this, let me just tell you a quick thing. Even the fact that Mahsa Amini, whose name, you know, and what happened to her has set off all of this and I find it very moving, you know, if I'm on protests in London or here in Italy and we're saying her name in the middle of the street and I think this Kurdish girl, you know, goodness, um, it's extraordinary to be saying her name out, you know, all over the world, in the streets of the world. But we call her Mahsa Amini because her real name, her Kurdish name, Gina, couldn't be registered on her birth certificate because that's, the Kurds can't do that in Iran. So you see, they, they can't also speak, teach their own language in school. So there's a fair amount of discrimination against the Kurds. And the fact that she was Kurdish may or may not have had something to do with the way that she was treated. But it definitely adds another layer to, you know, this is, you know, this this focus on the female, um, the gender apartheid, really, that women have been living under in Iran is of course the top thing that I think set all of this off. But I think you have very a very kind of close layer under that, which is about ethnic minorities in Iran also, who've always been repressed, mistreated. Um, and again, two weeks ago, two weekends ago, there was massive uprising in Sistan of Baluchistan, again, at, at another far away pro province, very kind of kept, very poor and, um, the regime response there again was extraordinarily heavy-handed. It was a it was a massacre. I saw videos of the scenes in hospitals, and they were just extraordinary. And I think they it's reported that there were seventy people killed in two hours. You know, so another layer to all of what's going on right now, Rick, is that um, and that's what gives us again the unity and the inspiration of what's happening right now is that it's everyone. It's all Iranians. You know, it's not just the urban elite it's not just the sort of middle class urban kids who go out on the streets as they often do this is everybody these are all the ethnicities the minorities are really centered in this because they also have now lost people and they've been at the forefront of the regime's um repression so this what we're seeing which is uh, spreading across the country. It's not just in the main cities. I think BBC Monitoring has uh, recorded 350 locations in which there have been protests. That's across all 31 provinces of Iran, big towns, small towns. You have traditionally really conservative towns like Mashhad, like Qom, um, who are out protesting. It's it's extraordinary. You have you know men adopting the hijab alongside women who are tearing it off because, you know, this is about all genders, you know, all age groups, all political and any sorts of, you know, religious, all inclinations, women with hijab, women without hijab. This idea of sense of unity is one of the things that is really inspiring, you know, amidst all the devastation. Absolutely. And I, I mean, I want to ask you two questions. You know, where do we go from here? But before I do that, 
I, I know that this is something that's kind of, I feel like been coming because you just, I don't know if it was a year or two ago, there was a wrestler that was like an Olympic wrestler that was murdered by this regime. And that, that, that became a, you know, an outcry of, uh, internationally. I know that you know, there's a sport I follow UFC. I'm also, I'm really big into grappling. And, and so in the, in my community, everyone was like, what, why would you kill this like amazing athlete? And there, there's been several other instances that have led to this, this, this coming to a head. But with that in mind, and, and also given the history of, I believe the prime minister in the fifties, Muhammad Mossadegh. Mossadegh. Okay, I, I, I didn't want, I was going to butcher his name. So thanks for helping me there. Uh, <laughs> but he nationalized Iranian oil and he was beloved. He actually installed a democracy and the British and the Americans, Eisenhower and Churchill just couldn't let that happen. Uh, and I, just, God forbid it, that the country has control of its just, own resources. Just, right? just, just, just yeah. for context, just for context, and I could get, be getting these numbers wrong, but one of the, a big, re, the, the Iranian oil, I believe it was in, yeah, World War II, um, that this has been going on since, probably before then, I'm, I'm mixing things up, but like 84% of those profits went to the British government. And if you think yeah. about how much oil how much OPEC makes and these Russian oligarchs, you'll get a sense that they use that to not only put gas in or yeah, gas oil in the, in their, in their fleet, one of the biggest navies in the world, but also to finance the war. Right. And this gentleman who was democratically elected and was like, no, 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 we can't have this 84% of, you know, not, not necessarily the entire GDP, but of our country's money is going to, to the British. We can't have that. We're going to nationalize this. Obviously the West, we can't have that. So we overthrew this guy that was democratically elected and then in, in, input the Shah. All right. So that, that kind of started. So when I asked the question, you know, where does this go from here? You know, the best indicator of future success can be found in the past. And my fear is, let's say that we get that, not we, but the people of Iran overthrow the government and maybe, maybe they go back to a democracy. There's going to be a lot of meddling going on. So, you know, is there even a chance for a democracy or something better than what they have now which, you know, from a Western perspective and someone that's very pro-America, I'm like, let's get a like friendly government in there so we can be friends. And I could, you know, I, I have a, a lot of Iranian friends who, uh, you know, one, one of their parents is a United States citizen and the other one, they can't get into America or the, the U.S. because they were because of where they were born. Right. And this is someone yeah. that has lived here in the past, you know, for five, 10 years, started a career things went sideways, had to go back. Most of their family lives in Los Angeles, Los Angeles area, and they're on the outside looking in. And they don't even live in Iran. They live in Germany. And they're a doctor, but they can't freaking come here. And that's I see that in a lot of my Iranian friends. Their families are separated. So that being said, you know, where where do you think this goes? Yeah, yeah Rick. Well, well, I mean, you bring so much, such great questions. I think... Uh, first of all, the visa thing is a nightmare. You have families literally 
torn apart by this, you know, and this was made worse, of course, by the so-called Muslim ban, which, yes. you know, people talk about it under Trump, but actually it came in under Obama. Yes. I mean, it was made more extensive under Trump. I do believe that Biden got rid of it, but um, it it made it impossible for, you know, our brightest Iranian minds are studying in America. Oh, no, yeah, they're definitely, I, smart, right? and I know <laughs> a lot of them. Yeah, a lot of us are right? friends. So, uh, I yeah. bet you do. And but even that blocked them, you know, Rick, from a- being able to go home in the summer because then they wouldn't be able to get back. Let's say somebody like my sister, who is a British citizen, who has not been back to Iran in the 43 years since we left. She could, she would have, she couldn't go to America because she was born in Iran, even though she hasn't been back 43. You know, as you say, this crazy stuff we had, this was nothing to do with that ban. But even in Britain, when my father passed away, we couldn't get his closest relatives out of Iran to London for his funeral because, because you know, because there's a whole protocol for inviting people. It takes ages. It costs money. You can't just do something in four days. Plus which, if you're not a first degree relative, you're not considered a close enough relative anymore, you know? So um, it's, it's inhuman. You know, this stuff is inhuman. You've seen it with your friends. It tears families apart and it's unfair and it's arbitrary, right? And it's not just Iran that suffers from this. We know all of that. So what is, what will happen? I, you know, as you said, um, the Iranian people have wanted democracy and and sovereignty um, for a really, really long time. 1905, was the first time that, um, it wasn't the first time, but it was one of the, the most significant times that there were uprisings in Iran, the first revolution that we had in the last century, and that was the Constitutional Revolution. And that was about bringing a constitution, um, bringing a parliamentary sort of government. So we started the Majlis. I think we were the first country in the region to do such a thing, to try take away power from the monarchy to try and clip their wings a little to have the country run by elected officials instead. Um, And why I brought up 1905 is because in the lead up with all of the unrest um, leading up to this was the first time that women started to form groups and start to have weekly meetings and start to make sort of, um, not unions exactly, but, you know, these kinds of groups. So that's also to contextualize how long, uh, you know, the women's movement in Iran is as old as the democratic movement in Iran. And that really places us at the heart, you know, the one of the chants of the revolution of 79 was, um, there are no human rights without women's rights. No. Uh, so women have always been right there. Iran has been struggling for democracy and sovereignty for more than 100 years now. And as you've so rightly said, you know, every time it starts to get sort of something approaching that, foreign powers sort of bowl in and get involved. And that is massively because of the curse of Iran, which is our oil. We have some of the largest oil and natural gas reserves in the world. Now, even before really oil became a thing, geo geopolitically, Iran was important. So yeah. we had the great game of the early 1900s between Imperial Russia and Imperial Britain. And Iran was right in the middle of that because, of course, Britain wanted a way to their colonies in India, which was very rich. They didn't want Russia 
to have a way into India. So Iran was this really important strategic point. So it was the Brits and the Russians that quashed the constitutional revolution. Um, we did end up with a constitution. We did end up with a majlis, a parliament and elections and this kind of thing. So we did get some elements of what we had wanted. But actually, the dynasty, the monarchs that we had at the time, got um, they got sort of <laughs> upended by our foreign sort of masters. And Reza Shah, who was an illiterate army officer in the Cossack Brigade, which was, you know, run by the Russians, was picked by the British um, and they decided that he had the potential and they helped him to climb through the ranks and to become Shah um, in the 1920s. So the kind of king. So that was the last Shah's father. So even that now, as you said, we were never a colony. We're one mm. of the few countries in the region to not officially be a colony. But we were we were a colony in all but name. Yes. You know. Um, during the First World War, <coughs> Iran was, in both wars, Iran was neutral um, officially, but actually in both wars it got invaded. Yes. And in the First War, it was, Russia went to a point and Britain went to a point, you know, to occupy Iran because by that point we had oil, so uh, Britain wanted to protect the oil reserves. Um, and the, the same thing kind of happened in the Second World War, because the Shah of the time, Reza Shah, who the Brits had put in, um, was quite sympathetic to Hitler. So they kind of couldn't have that. And so they also, the Brits also got rid of him and installed his son, um, who was the last Shah of Iran, Mohammad Reza Shah. Yeah. Uh, so that's a little bit about foreign powers. And I just want to point out in both of those world wars where Iran was neutral, but was invaded nonetheless, there was, there was famine in Iran and something like a recorded million people died in between those things. Again, these things aren't known, you know, the fact that Iran was also the gateway for Jews passing from Poland through Russia and into Israel, you know, and we had the Iranian sort of Schindler, as it were, who saved a lot. You know, there's a lot of this stuff that isn't very well known. Um, oil. <laughs> you absolutely got that right. So in 1903, maybe, or something like this, um, there was an Englishman called William Knox Darcy who had been a gold miner in Australia. So he, 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 he was jingling, you know, That's with right. wealth at that point. Um, and obviously, he was a bit of a speculator and adventurer. He shows up in Iran and he asks for the concession to dig, look for oil in a part of the country, which is where my other half is from, Khuzestan, which is the southern western region that has the oil that borders with Iraq. Um, at that time... Iran was not that centralized, so he made his deal with the sheikh of the region as opposed to, you know, we had lots of different sort of rulers of our regions and then the main Qajar Shah. Um, so he made this deal, and that was the Anglo-Persian Oil Company, which later became BP. Um, now, Anglo-Persian 
then was being financed massively by the British government, even though they weren't officially involved, but he was just a sort of private speculator. On the eve of the First World War, as you absolutely rightly said, Winston Churchill at that time was the first Lord of the Admiralty in the UK. So he was running the um, Navy, which was a massive resource for the UK, and they had just converted their ships from coal to oil. So in order to make sure that, you know, the fleet was going to have enough power to run, particularly through this great war coming up, he persuaded the government to invest in Iranian oil. And so the majority shareholder in the Anglo-Persian oil company became um, Her Majesty's government, his majesty now, but Her Majesty's government then. So they were... um, so, so, yes, 80, we got 16%. 84. 16, yes, I think it was 16. Yeah. Exactly. 16% of the profit went to Iran. 84 went to, you know, Her Majesty or his, who, whichever majesty it was, their coffers in the UK. And, you know, one of the things that, because I grew up in Britain, so one of the things that I always try and point out, and especially in the Britain of right now, which is quite... Brexit, it quite doesn't want refugees, immigrants, it's gotten a bit insular. I always try and kind of point out that these British institutions that they really see as being very British and making the country so great, like uh, the welfare, um, our, our welfare and the, the National Health Service, these things, institutions that were set up after the Second World War when Britain had money. They what, what? Where did that greatness come from? Where did where was Britain able to finance these things from? Things like the proceeds of our oil. So, you know, and and all of the riches of India and all of the tea in Ceylon. You know, now, you know what I mean. All of this. So, I kind of try and point this out to the Brits. I say, but but do you see that these institutions that you think you know make this country so great and need to be protected from this sort of tsunami of refugees, which we don't have in Britain at all, really, um, we're actually set up with the resources of the countries of those people that you're trying to keep out of here, you know? Like, not to make people feel bad. People never know what to do with that information. But just for people to understand that, you know, there's a lot more interdependence in this world than we want to give credit to. You know, this idea that you have this nation and you have borders and it's all about you and you're great and you've deserved it because, you, you know, your country has been clever or democratic. or No, I, <laughs> not I, really true, is it? I can relate to that in more because I know a lot of history. And, but I, I still, I still forget that sometimes. And I, I definitely think a lot of, a lot of, you know, my friends and, you know, people that met have the same worldview view as me, we forget that, you know, our country, right, NAFTA, probably wasn't the best thing, putting a lot of Mexican farmers out of work and, you know, destroying their economy for cheap. And so there, a lot of the pro- – well, I mean, and I don't want to get into our foreign policy. We might have the worst foreign policy, <laughs> the United States, in the history of the world. Like, it's so bad sometimes. Sometimes it's good, but 82% of the time, 85% of the time, it's terrible. But, you know, we do tend to make our own problems, and we've made a lot of message. You know, the, the Taliban, for example. 
people. Like they were our yeah. allies in the 80. And then the right. Mujahideen, we created them and we sold them missiles and we sold them weapons to fight the Russians. And then, you know, we Don't created bin Laden. Yeah. ISIS. Yeah. The, another thing, you know, what what's going on in Syria, which also I, I you know, Iran could potentially help us stabilize well, that. We <laughs> Go ahead. Well, this is all stuff, not to interrupt you, but this is all to say, um, funnily enough, all of what you've just mentioned takes us back to, you know, when, when did America enter into this kind of relationship with Iran? So we were a sort of client of the UK, really. As you said, Mossadegh came along in 1951 and nationalized the oil industry, um, at which point, I mean, he was very popular, not just, in, yeah, he was a democratically elected prime minister. He was not just popular in Iran, but he was he was Time magazine's man of the year, I think, in 1952. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, he was seen as this great inspirational leader. He actually, you know... What he did led to a bunch of, you know, different resources in the region being taken back by their sovereign sort of governments, led to the Suez crisis, this kind of thing. So he was, then if you look at newspaper headlines at the time, the British ones, he was utterly demonized in the in the UK press. And there was a big um, sort of campaign against him. And, and this is when you had, um, so we, I think there was... Um, there was a president in the US who was not keen, who was quite sim- sympathetic to Mossadegh, so he wasn't inter- interfering. But then there was a change of power in both the UK and in the US. So we had Churchill come back in, and I think, as you said, Eisenhower, yeah. wasn't it? Um, and they said, yes, let's do this. So they engineered, it's very well known now, they engineered a coup, MI6 in the CI- and CIA, um, Kermit Roosevelt, he was the one who was on the ground in Tehran. He was, you know, given this mission, he went off. There's an amazing book written by Stephen Kinzer, uh, All the Shah's Men, I think it's called, yeah, and yeah. somewhere on my show, um, which reads kind of like a thriller about, you know, how they went to Tehran and they fermented this coup. And the Shah of the time, you know, our last Shah, who had run away because of, you know, Mossadegh being popular in this kind of, um, these troubles, he was reinstalled back in power and Mossadegh was arrested. Um, and and so the status quo was, not, we didn't really go back to the status quo, but there was a new version of it. And that's when America became maybe, let's say, the, the bigger um, unofficial colonizing power in Iran. And what you talked about, actually, Rick, it, it was this beautiful relationship. I mean, I think I said this in my book, The Cypress Tree. You know, the, the relationship between Iran and America is is like that of two people that had a really great marriage and, and now are having a really bitter divorce, yeah. you know, because the Iran that I grew up in, you know, we, we, went, we had a Cadillac, you know, we had so much from American culture. Um, so many Americans, my father was in the oil company, so we had so many American colleagues there. Um, yeah. He traveled every year to America. Yeah. At one um, point, at one point, there were 40,000 Americans living in Iran. 40,000, all working in the oil industry, lot, right? teachers. Yeah, that's quite a few. Yeah. It's quite a few. Sorry yeah, to interrupt. There you. was a really, and you know what? The Iranians, because of our long history of interference from the Brits, the Iranian population loved America in a way that they didn't love Britain. 
loved America, like loved America. Even now, I have aunties who blame everything that ever happens in Iran on Britain because that's historically what people did. It's always the fault. They would always say, go and ask your queen. (laughs) She knows what's going on. But they would never blame stuff on America, you know. I mean, maybe now they've started to, but historically, the suspicion of Britain, you know, as this interfering, colonizing power was so great. And America was really seen as not just a colonizer, really, but actually as more of a partner. And definitely American culture, American fashion, American goods, American cars, American everything was was kind of where it was at, you know, in the 70s in, in Iran, the Iran that I remember. Um, so it would really do not just our countries, Rick, but the whole world so much good if our countries could kiss and make up. I know. Because, you know, as you said, all of these groups that, that you know, America has kind of funded and, and in order to protect its interests in the region, you know, this could so easily knock into what's going on in Iran right now. Yeah. I mean, that's... Uh, and, and Iran is a power in the region. It was in the Shah's time a stabilizing force. It was seen as a, as a stabilizing force in the region. And it would absolutely, you know, right now this, this the Islamic regime in Iran, it is a state funder, a funder of terror. And I can say this now, I, you know, I couldn't say this before because, you know, us, the, us kind of dual nationals we've who want to keep our relationship with Iran but want to be also able to speak about it, you know, we walk a very difficult line, we have always done, because on the one hand, the rhetoric around Iran since 79, but particularly more so since, you know, September 11 and the axis of evil speech, um, that we felt so strongly that our country is about to be attacked, you know, in fact, it's quite the only one in the region that hasn't been in these last sort of 20 years. That we've had to be quite careful about, you know, we want to denounce the regime because of its crimes, its worst crimes are against our own people, you know. But at the same time, we don't want to give fuel to the narrative in the West that Iran needs to be, you know, invaded or whatever. And that's, we're in a tricky moment now, I have to say, with these uprisings regarding that. But that's what I mean. Before, I would have been hesitant to say state sponsor of terror because I would have thought, I want to be able to go back. I don't want to get arrested. I don't want my family to get into trouble. But, you know, I've been emboldened by these protests as the people in Iran have. So the Islamic regime, it's very strong. It's very powerful. It's very well established. And that's a problem because the West could have, tried to stabilize their, you know, they could have tried not to allow Russia and China to be the dominant foreign powers inside Iran. You know, we've, we've in the West, that's been a problem for us, that we've lost influence there, that we don't have soft power. Um, however, the Iranian regime does fund, you know, Hezbollah. The groups in Palestine. Hezbollah, you know, it's all over Lebanon. It's all over Syria. It's all over Yemen. It's all over, you know, there are Iranian drones that are dropping Russian bombs in Ukraine. Um, They ain't good for anyone. You know, it would be an amazing thing. First, 
for the Iranian people, but secondly, for the rest of the world. Yeah. If we had a peaceful, democratic Iran, because here's the thing, the Iranian people are not the regime, right? Just in the same way as the American people are not Biden or Trump or whoever is representing you, you know, we... But particularly, you know, democracies, even in a democracy, you can see how difficult it is to get someone to represent the people accurately. But, you know, when you have a a theocracy, um, an authoritarian regime, the idea that for the past 43 years, the people of Iran have been seen as the same as the regime has been one of the most distressing things to all of us. You know, that, inside and outside. Yes, and I, I have to say because I, d- I still think there is a ton of love for between, uh, especially on the Iranian side of Americans. Because like I, 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 one of my best friends was born in Iran, and through him I met a lot of Iranians. A lot, a lot. Some, some were just studying in the United States uh, at college, and we would, we would all hang out, and it was just like, man, we love you guys. You should come visit. I had a. I became friends with a, a professor that taught um, nuclear engineering. I don't even know what class I was in at this time, but she, she was telling me about how you can ski and like there's, you know, there's just so much and you should come visit. We love you guys. Uh, I don't like the government, but, you know, it's a big reason why I'm here. But it's and, and again, I also want to say that that is skewed. These are people that are studying in the United States. These are these these are a lot of these people. Their family had to leave when the Shah was ousted. And um but I, I, I guarantee you, I mean, there was a documentary that I watched um, a number of years ago about a basketball player that went to Iran to play basketball. It's this brother. There's some league. And he ended up just falling in love. The people loved him. There were a lot of people. This guy used to live in America. And I was just shocked. It kind of just opened, you know, that, that my, my friends, they, they opened this, this world. And I got interested and started looking into the history uh, of it. But I... You know, I, I don't know how something like this gets done with the regime that they have now. And I, you know, my fear, you know, we talked about this earlier. It's like, if, if that regime is ousted, then it becomes this giant pawn again, right? Where the West, like, can we get back in? And Russia's like, no, 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 you know? So I don't know. And I also can't, couldn't tell you in this this is a fault of mine i hate the news i do not watch the news at all i have no idea what's i know that this is going on it's been on social media i can this was also outed on the podcast. I have I have a te- terrible tendency to watch like kind of crazy videos. And there's been a lot of crazy things <laughs> popping up on the internet out of Iran like yeah. just for example, yeah. one kid there's two morality police officers, one woman intervenes and then this group of people just gang rush this cop. And I don't know if they killed him, but it was it didn't look good for him. And then everyone okay. scrammed, right? So there's a lot of crazy things happening, a lot of bloodshed. And I, but I don't know, you know, my my question to you is is this being covered a lot in the media? Is is there a giant like is is it getting the same amount of coverage as Ukraine? I have uh, a lot of my Iranians friends say no, I can't necessarily trust my sources cuz but I, I do trust you. I love you guys. You know who you know who you are. But I can't trust you. I gotta ask. Carmen. <laughs> <laughs> uh, 
You know what? No, it's not getting enough press. And it's it's been really distressing for all of us who are watching this. You know, here in Europe, particularly, you cannot imagine the blanket coverage of Ukraine, Russia, this, that, you know, blah, blah, cost of gas, you know, everything's going to be expensive. In Britain, it's all about what the government's doing, you know, and it's just extraordinary to me that um, so many news outlets have just yeah, they maybe it, there's been a couple of news reports, but nothing like. And so mainstream, traditional, legacy, whatever you call it, media, I don't think has really caught up. CNN has done a little bit. The BBC has done a little bit. It, you know, continues to do bits and pieces. I mean, I've been all over the, a lot of these programs. Um, I've spent the last month, it's been like a full-time job, writing to every editor that I know and saying, aren't you going to cover this? And can I write this or that? You know, and I've gone to everybody, you know, really from newspapers to glossy magazines. I'm like, let's, you know, cover this from every aspect. I cannot understand. I can't see. I open my social media and it's not like it was when BLM happened, you know. I don't see those hashtags and those black squares everywhere. I don't. I'm not oh. seeing the response that people gave to Ukraine. And I keep going, why? I don't understand. Like, I don't understand. George Floyd was murdered by a cop and Masamini was murdered by a bunch of cops. What's the difference? You know, he was killed for his color. She was killed for her gender. Mm -hmm. How I mean, come that's not? I, yeah. I mean, my, my, my take on it is, and, Forgive me, but I feel like the take is this happens all the time in that section of the world. Why? Why should we care? Yeah. And and I right. and it, and it and it's we've you know you and I during the course of our conversation have outlined why you should fucking care. Like not only like th there's a giant opportunity here, um, and that's I feel like that's dark also for me to say. Sorry, I I, I sometimes speak in the um, um yeah. But there's a there's a giant. I'm going to say it again. I'm so sorry. There's a giant opportunity here, right, to f mend or get on the right track. Um, and I don't I don't think we're we're smart enough to take it. It's not sexy. I, it's not it's yeah. not going to sell. It's not you know what I mean. Like it's not like they they're they're so it's that's so far away, and it, they don't think it's relevant. But they don't know. Like they people don't know. And and I can't imagine how frustrating it would be for you. And it is frustrating for me too, as a giant history nerd, like pe people have so much to pay attention to and think about. Not only that, there's an election cycle that's going on in the United States. So like, no, and, and it's not, it's uh, generally local. There's a lot of gubernatorial races and whatnot that are happening and the, those people really can't do anything. But I do feel like if this continues to go, you know, in the next, for and it's going to, um, but it, that's something that probably will be talked about, um, when you get to the Congress, congressional races and, and whatnot. So it's just, they have to persist a little bit longer with no help and no aid. And, and the, any aid that they're going to be getting is not, it's Russia, China, they don't, this is bad for business. They don't want to it's, see this succeed. Yeah. yeah. So it's like, it's you know, really what are tricky. we doing? It's very tricky. What's up, John? Uh, I just wanted to add some perspective too. like the United States as far as like immigration and helping like 
people that are in need since World War II has kind of been very spotty. It's like our great legacy as a nation of immigrants. But since since the 40s and the 30s, that kind of has flipped where during World War II, you had where the American people were pretty split whether they wanted to help people to you know escape the Holocaust in Europe. But the State Department and the government was very much opposed. And like Rick said, now, you know, we have the midterm elections are happening and it's, yeah, it's a lot of local elections and gubernatorial elections, but there are huge stakes involved in this that like if the Republicans flip the Senate or if they flip the House, you know, stuff, stuff is going to happen. So, and I think, you know, I think you're right, Rick, that just people here assume, you know, oh, this happens all the time, you know, everywhere is a dictatorship in in the Middle East. Yeah, it's, it's, it's insane. And I'm, you know. I'm polling for the people. I think that I I I I think that they're tired of this. They there's a yeah. there's an institutional memory too of when things were different. And those people are still alive that realize like this is not normal. Like we did not used to have hijabs. Like this this yeah. isn't this isn't necessary. This isn't who we are as a people. Like we yeah. we like we have a thousand years of letting people govern themselves and having we, we wrote down the first human rights our civilization Thank did you. this is not it, who we are and and they and it's and if i'm getting it's frustrating for me to see this happen right like this is not this this is not reminiscent of this culture this civilization at all what's going on and a lot yeah. of most people know that and so that's why, right. you know, you have men and women all all on the same side and being like, yeah, we know more people destroying Humani's picture and like they don't want this. Every Iranian person I've talked to hates the government. They all hate him. They, they all hate hate what's going on. <laughs> yeah. You're you're so right, Rick. I thank you so much for understanding. You know, it's quite diff- rare to come across people who have the depth of understanding that you do around Iran and what it means internationally. And yes, it's, you know, as you say, I mean, yes, of course, this will touch all of us in terms of geopolitics. But also, I say to people, but this is the front. Are you a woman? Do you know a woman? Do you love a woman? Do you consider yourself a feminist? You know, Um, well, then have a look at what's going on over there. There are 15 year old girls who are taking off their hijab and with their hair flowing are getting in the face of regime officials and chasing them just with their words out of the schoolyard. I mean, what are we talking about? This is young girls putting their actual bodies on the line, you know, this is the most embodied kind of movement on the line to physically take space back. You know, these women seeing them walking and we're seeing more and more pictures like this, quiet civil disobedience, women walking along in Tehran, you know, just just wearing normal clothes, just not wearing a hijab. You know, I showed a picture to my husband who's Italian and I said, look at this picture. And he went, what? It's a normal picture. And I'm like, yeah, well, what's weird about it? It was a woman in a skirt and a top with a handbag across the middle with her hair out, taking out money from a cash point. But she was in Tehran and it took me a second and it took him even longer to go, but hang on a minute. What's weird about this is that she's not weird. Like she looks like everybody else in the world. She's just normally dressed. She's not wearing Mm -hmm. hijab. That in itself is extraordinary. And perhaps people can't appreciate how much 
people are laying their lives on the line. You know, there is a there is a, a, a mountain, a professional, well, a, a mountain climber, if that's what you call them, called El Naz Rekabi, who right now is competing in the Asian Mountaineering Championships. I don't know where they are, but somewhere in the world, not in Iran. Mm-hmm. And she is doing so for Iran without wow. her hair covered. And that means that when she goes home, she will be arrested. And she may be tortured and she may be raped and she may be beaten to death. And I think what people don't appreciate is how um, significant what is going on is. You know, every time a girl takes off her hijab, every time any of those people, men or women, go out on the streets with their faces showing, you know, every time one of them comes and speaks, um, they're risking their lives. You know, you talked about the wrestler. There are so many, you know, I don't know if you saw this some weeks ago, right at the beginning of all of this, for a qualifying match, the Iran soccer team, football yes. team. They, they covered, covered up. up. They covered up the, yeah. the Islamic they Republic. They covered up the flag of the Islamic Republic. Yeah. They have all been arrested as soon as they got hurt. They all get their passports confiscated. You know, I don't know if you heard about this fire that there was this weekend in this enormous prison in the north of Tehran, Evin. And the reason that has devastated everybody and and everyone has had sleepless nights to try and understand is because that is where everyone is being held. The protesters, the students, the activists, the filmmakers, the authors, the journalists, the intellectuals, the actors, the painters, the footballers, the sports people, anybody who's come out to speak or take part or in any way indicate that they have some support for this or not for the Islamic Republic, is inside, I have several friends inside that jail, you know, there are American citizens inside that jail, you know. Um, So this is so wide ranging, you know, people's, people are so brave to be doing this. So where it touches us is that this is feminism, this is the front line of feminism. But this is also true, you know, that word that we use. So true intersectionality, because this is men standing up for the women. You know, this is men mo- joining the feminist movement. This is everybody joining. This is schoolgirls joining this movement in order to um, protect and to stand with university students who were also, you know, campuses were raided and they were devastated and they were arrested. So this is what I say to everyone. This isn't about it's over there. I don't know who they are. I don't want to say something that's against someone's religion. They do this stuff all the time. I don't understand the culture. I can't, you know, I don't know what the reliable news sources are. All of that I can accept. But you know what? You're a human being. They're human beings. Look at what's going on. This this is about humans. This is about human rights. This isn't culture. It's not religious. It's not some, you know, funny thing that happens in the Middle East that you can't, you're too scared to say anything about. This is about people asking for really, really simple things, like the simple right to be able to choose. You know, this isn't Iranians going, we don't want to be Muslim. This is Iranians, including devout Muslim Iranians, saying we want the right to choose because you're taking, the regime has taken a symbol of, you know, many people's faith and symbol of their devotion. You know, the way that they show that they're devoted to Allah is, you know, they will cover them. They've taken this symbol and they've turned it into a tool of oppression for half of the population. And no one wants that, including those people who really devoutly, you know, believe. Because 
that's not correct. It, it's, but it's the same as a woman in France or in India being forcibly unhijabbed. Mm -hmm. It's the same thing. You know, this isn't about the hijab. This is about choice. It's... This is about a woman's choice over her body. And it's about people being allowed to live in some dignity, you know, and you said this, the many things that have gone into this protest are not just the death of Massa Gina that day. It's about the economy. It's about the, the, the way that this government, this, this regime has mistreated the people, the land, the resources, the way that the corruption, I mean, the corruption is, is just so widespread, you know, the, the, utter hypocrisy you know you can see on social media mm, i was going to get to the, that the children and grandchildren of these men who are authorizing this level of violence mm -hmm. against women on the street you can see them in their mansions in la you in know wearing new york nothing, and paris exactly right? i was it's just the, gonna say in that london yeah. you know Oh, it's the hypocrisy of it that they are. It's the pilfering. It's the extortion. You know, it's just the daylight robbery of what they're doing under the name of Islam in our country. And, you know, the botched COVID, you know, 65,000 people died in the first few months in COVID in, in Iran. You know, Iran couldn't shut down and lock down. They didn't, you know, the economy couldn't stand it. So this is an absolute bursting out, I think, of fury against this regime that has treated its citizenship with such contempt, you know, with such little humanity for not just these past few years, though it's gotten worse, but for the past 43 years, you know, I, I feel that. You see, um, you know, the average age of those being arrested is 15. So you see, you know, this is something, you know, in the hands of a 15-year-old girl shouting. You can hear them, the fury in their voices. And I think, where has this come from? And I think, but it's come from us. It's come from every generation that has been put down and has shut up out of fear, has tried to negotiate, has tried to get along, has tried to just manage their life somehow. And why it touches us all is because this, this is human spirit going enough. I don't, I cannot, I will not take any more, right? And that is positive. That is inspiring. And that does touch the whole world because, you know, we think it couldn't happen to us, but we can see women's rights are being eroded all over the, the world. You know, women's bodies are very much the battleground for lots right now, even in the States, you know, so we do need to take notice of these people. We need to take also notice of how united they are, because I think that equivalent movements in the West are not that united right now, you know, so the unity, the, the seeing, you know, I've, I've heard protesters saying there are people in these protests who are religious and they're angry. There are people here who are not religious and they're angry. There are people here who are, you know, LGBTQ and they're angry. There are people here who are, the, and they're like, there is space for everybody because every single person has suffered in some way or another at the hands of this regime. Some people more, some people less, but everybody, including those of us in the diaspora, we too have suffered. You know, our lives have also been affected 
by that. We're not suffering daily like our brothers and sisters on the ground. But, you know, we've lost our homeland, our language. I can't speak to the people I want to in case I'm a journalist in the West. Uh, if I ring someone, they might get arrested tomorrow. You know, what is that like to live with? You know, this everyone has been touched and, and that has become the thing that is unifying everybody. What the, some of the chants are, you know, um, we stand as one, otherwise one by one, we are done, you know, yep. something like this. It's that real sense of unifying for one common goal and supporting each other. Absolutely. Helping each other and supporting each other and tolerating. And I think, I think in, in the most idealistic way, that definitely is a place where we should all be being touched by what's happening and, and watching it and being inspired by it. And then, of course, there's all the other reasons, the geopolitical and, as you say, what could come next is, could be very scary. <laughs> yes, absolutely. Well, listen, I, I think that's a great place to end. I really enjoyed speaking with you. I, and I wish, I, I wish nothing but the best for this movie. I hope, it, I, hope it, I, hope they, I hope they take it down, remove the shackles and, and return to what they were always destined to be, the people of Iran. We're, we're, we're with you. And, um, you know, where can people find you? I know you have a book. Please, please, any anything we can do. Uh, uh, thanks, Rick. Uh, I have a book called The Cypress Tree, which was my first book. Um, it wasn't published in the U.S., but you can buy it on Amazon and get it shipped in. Um, so it's called The Cypress Tree. That That's all about Iran. My second book is called Bella Figura. That is published in the U.S. That's all about Italy, which is where I live now, so it's slightly off topic. Mm -hmm. um, I have a website, Carmen, K-A-M-I-N dot C-O dot U-K, where all of the work, particularly all the work I'm doing at the moment, is going up there every day, being updated. So you can um, find me on those. And Rick, thank you. God, it's been so, such a pleasure to talk to you. I feel like I could talk to you for hours. Oh, yes. Um, yeah, I, I, I've enjoyed talking with you as well. I've learned a lot. So. Thank you. Thank you so Thank much. You. And you know what? Inshallah. Inshallah. Yeah. Well, we'll put your socials. That's Thanks, everyone, for listening. Um, go ahead. We got to, you know, please like and subscribe the channel. Uh, if you want to see more content like that, it helps uh, the, our channel grow. And, and uh, you know, Carmen, we'll definitely have you on again. This is a great, great conversation. And I'm looking forward to, to many more. Thank you, Rick. It's been my pleasure.